0: We thank you for your word, we thank you for this weather, this merciful cool weather that you've given us. We thank you for this time together, we thank you for the gift of your church and the, and the calling that you have given us to assemble, to make much of Jesus and to, um, as a time to reflect on where we are and where our, our own hearts are in relation to him. And so I pray that you would... By your Spirit, help us to rightly discern if there is any uh, wicked way in us, lead us to the cross. And we we ask that we would be uh, convicted, that we would be encouraged, that we would be um, joyful on the grace that we have uh, because of what you've done for us in Christ this morning. as we take up this next section of Leviticus, dealing with Nadab and Abihu and what went on there, we pray that the overarching theme of this uh, historical narrative would be that you are holy and we um, and we come to you on your terms, not ours. And to Christ's name we pray, amen. Welcome, please come in. Good morning.
1: Okay. We lost one. We
0: lost oh, one, sorry. all right. Well, we are in, um, oddly enough, Leviticus. Still, it happens that way. We stick in a book for a while. We're in Leviticus ten, and we were listening. Uh, we were listening to um, Shia of Lynn" this morning on the way to church, which is, I know, just an odd, an odd thing for us. And the and the the song came on. The the the. Um, the High Priest, The Day of Atonement song on the Stories album. Highly recommended. I think it's track five. Anyway, um, it maybe six. I can't remember. There's an intermission thing. Anyway, so but he talks about the, 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 the fear that he has as the High Priest going into the Holy of Holies. And one of the lines is, Nab, Nadab and Abihu got it wrong and he roasted them. It's kind of just right there. Just very blunt. And that's what we're talking about today. What is going on here? Uh, Aaron and his sons, as we've seen through, uh, well, way back in Exodus 20, in the 20s, 28, uh, have been set apart, they're being set apart in this past few chapters, where we've seen that they've been set apart to be priests to God, to directly uh, minister to God, to, to, to be the representative of the people to to God uh, through sacrifices and and atoning uh, work that they're doing in the tabernacle. Think about the history of this. Aaron and his sons, including Nadab and Abihu, he had four. Uh, were set apart. They were part of the group that had the fellowship meal with God on Mount Sinai. I remember whenever he gave the, the law. Before he gave the law, he, they all came up to have the meal at the halfway point of the mountain. These guys were there. They were sent as obedient throughout the ordination ceremony that we just went through in chapter 8. They were consecrated. They were ritually holy. They were charged along with their father and their other brothers to safeguard the worship of Yahweh, to lead the assembly in praise, to, to distinguish between the sacred and the profane, and to offer atonement sacrifices. This is, this is their role. They're set apart in front, of, in front of everybody. This is who they are in relationship to the people, the models. Uh, They had participated in the first sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And God had approved those sacrifices. It was a great display of glory, of of the, the glory of God coming out, the fire coming out to consume the sacrifices. And they were part of bringing that about. I mean, they helped with that. They they uh, they had a great hand in seeing that it was all done correctly, and God and God rewarded that with His presence and what He had promised. It was a great time. It was a great time to be a priest in Israel. It was a great time to be the oldest sons. I mean, the way the succession worked, Nadab would be the oldest. Would probably be high priest after Aaron passed. It's a great time to be a priest. A lot of promise, a lot of hope, a lot of prestige. It's true their father had led the sacrificing and they were merely attending to him that was the way their uncle Moses had directed. Them. only their father and Moses had entered the tabernacle itself again part of the orders of Moses so they were they were still outside but they too had been instructed in the commands for tabernacle duties and they knew what to do right? Leviticus 10. Starting in verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Azael, the uncle Aaron, said to them, Come near. Carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. What is going on here? What's going on here? What is? That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Does anybody feel that? Is that just me? That's a harsh thing. What did they do? Bringing strange fire, bringing unauthorized fire, bringing the literal, the meaning of the word foreign fire. It's a word that's used many times to refer to um, pagans. Or non Hebrew people, and yet they're identified as being, as bringing pagan, non Hebrew fire before the Lord? What does that mean? What do you think? What does this mean? It
1: was disobedience in that it wasn't explicitly what God had commanded them to do, it was their own imagination of what they wanted to offer.
0: Okay, it was, a, it was something that God had not commanded them to do. It was some of the, something that was novel, coming from their own imaginations. Um, what was the refrain that we have seen from chapter 8 and 9 all the way through? And they did as the Lord had commanded them. As the Lord had commanded them. They brought unauthorized fire that the Lord did not command we have an instance, and what did Moses told them? Do this, lest you. Was he joking? No,
1: apparently
0: not. <laughs> no, he wasn't joking. He wasn't joking. Uh, again, there's. We really don't know exactly what went on here. We don't know exactly what the nature of the thing was that they were doing. Several of the smart guys have theories. Uh, some think that they were trying to introduce a pagan ritual or element into the worship of Yahweh. That's why he uses the, the, the word for pagan or non-Hebrew. Uh, s- others think that it was the source of the fire that was the problem. They, they took carelessly from a, a nearby hearth, you know, where they were boiling the, uh, the, the, the bull during their ordination ceremony. They may have taken fire from there rather than from under the altar where God had started it and where they were to tend. So it was from a different location than they had been specifically told. Uh, others claim, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm leaning here for, for reasons I'll tell you in a minute. Others claim that they tried to enter the Holy of Holies and approach the mercy seat. And there's some support for that in Leviticus 16. Um, that chapter starts out referencing the death of Nadab and Abihu. And then goes into, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord says, don't come to me just whenever. If you're going to come to me, this is the day you do it and this is how you do it. And it's the day of atonement. right? So there's, there's that idea. He, he opens up with their, their sin, or at least it, it hints at that their sin was that they, they were presumptuous. I can come to God whenever I want. I'm a priest too. I'll bring some fire here. Here's some fire. We'll go in there and we'll just... I haven't seen this. What does this look like inside? Dad and Moses got to go in. Why can't I go in? That's kind of the idea here. At least that's what some of the smart guys think. And and I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic to that position um, because of, of the way Leviticus 16 starts out. Others think that they were drunk. And the following verses to this story give some support to that. I mean, he goes right into don't be, don't drink strong drink when you're a priest because it muddles your mind. You're not thinking right. These are specific commandments I've given. Um, others say it's just bad timing, <laughs> or an offering that was in addition to the daily offering that was not commanded. That and that's what makes it strange. Um, Anyway, the, what is clear... We don't, we're not sure what exactly was going on, but what is clear is that they were making an offering in a different way than what God had commanded. It was something in addition to, something different than what God had commanded. Yeah?
1: It reminds me of the very first lie, did God really say. Mm-hmm. You know, a matter of the heart here. Did God really say that it has to be this fire? Did He really say we can't do this? It's defiance in the heart.
0: Yeah. It, it's, again, it's not. It's novelty. Uh, this would be cool. Let's do this. i oh, will really like it if we do this. Or we'll look cool if we do this. If we go in too. You know, if it, if it's Leviticus 16 is a controlling thing there. All right. Nadab and Abihu do that which he did not command them. They draw near to God in an aberrant manner, not according to the word of God, but in deliberate disobedience. They come to him in self-will and the, and the feeling here is one of arrogance. And in a single day it moves from triumph to tragedy. Think about that. As Aaron is taking on those robes, as he's, as he's stepping into that role, there's got to be some joy there. We finally, we put the path thing behind us. This is a good day. And then, bam. Um, notice, too, in verse 2, <clears throat> that the fire... That consume the offerings in approval consumes these two priests in judgment. The uh, the times that you see God's fire coming out and consuming things, there are six times that that I'm aware of in the Old Testament. And three of them are are in approval and three are in judgment. It's the same fire. God doesn't change. He responds to um, the contrite heart, humility... In a way of approval, and he responds to pride, way of judgment. It's the same fire. Their fire is met with his fire. It's different fire, it's from a different source. It's not the same fire, and they're consumed. All right, is this fair? Let's just, there's the elephant in the room. Is it fair? Well, how can you say that? I mean, it's just a little fire in a little tent in the middle of the desert.
1: Looking at it from the perspective there, looking at it from God's perspective.
0: By what standard? We come back to the old apologetic question. By what standard? What are they charged to do? What is their job? Obey. To intercede, to obey. Before whom? Before a holy God, yes. And before the people. And And this thing is just getting off the ground, right? We have the congregation watching the obedience of these priests. Wow, these are model guys. If there's an infraction like this, I'm going there too. If there's an infraction like this, and he's just, well, hey, remember... Da-na-na. I know I've told you times lest you die. What what's the what's the response going to be on the next infraction? There's a standard here, and do you remember the story of Esther? Remember this, the Jewish princess queen that gets the beauty pageant. She goes in, finds out of a plot Haman that's going to kill the Jews, and she needs to go do something to save her people. And what was the big, the big climactic controversy there? What, what was the deal? Why couldn't she stop it? What was keeping her from doing it? She, she had to go into the king's presence to get him to do something. If she goes in un- unsummoned. unsummoned, unordered, it was not lawful for her to go in, it was not lawful for her to go in, he'd kill her. And so the thing there was, he put out a scepter to her and she held it and that showed that he, he's going to... She was a welcome sight. You know. How much more God, the king, coming into his presence unbeckoned, unauthorized. If, if Leviticus 16 is right, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm working from that presumption. If that's the issue, how much more of a dishonor is that to God than a, than a human pagan king. And they know better. And so, he makes good on lest you die. And what does this do to the people? What does this do to Aaron? Hmm. We need to be careful in asking is the, the is it fair kind of question. Many times we devalue the holiness of God and judge Him by our standard, by our preferences, rather than recognizing that He's the moral standard here, not us. These men scorned God's commands. Um, if this is tolerated at this point in time, the priests will be more careless and emboldened to introduce their own ideas of what is right worship. Right? The judgment on them is greater because they're living their lives in front of the people. This has a trickle down effect. Is that true today? You have guys in the spotlight who 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 blow it. Does it have an effect on everyone else who's not in the spotlight but claims the name of Christ? Absolutely.
1: Even our whole legal system is set on precedent, not on law anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I don't know what you mean by that. What do you mean? By precedent?
1: By precedent. If somebody uh, interprets the law a certain way, uh-huh. they, it establishes a precedent. It establishes a right. look at this case, and if that case is pushing the, the line of the law and okay, so that it gets pushed further and further and further based upon precedent. Right,
0: right. Well, uh, yes. I mean, our, our, our legal system is one of precedent. It's stare decisis and, and we, we establish it based upon rules that are that are uh, put out uh, by the court unless it's trumped by further legislature or whatever. But yes, if, if there's a big star case and big-name guy gets away with murder. If it doesn't fit.
1: <laughs> then other
0: people are emboldened to throw out different-sized gloves at their murder scene. So, um, Anyway, yes, there's that. I'm also thinking, though, inside the church. I expect that in the pagan world. I mean, I, why would I be surprised by that in the pagan world? But in the church, when we have... You know, celebrity pastors who blow it. Does it not affect us? Does it not affect... Oh, there's just another one. He got away with it. He got restored to his pastorate after he did this, that, and the other. Does that not affect us? God holds that stuff very, very... uh, takes it very, very seriously and holds people accountable for that. And right out of the gate, you have this... What is? What does Moses say to Aaron? What do you say? Isn't that kind of harsh?
1: Because of what just happened, and so Aaron's got this great grief sure. over his son, but he also probably under- he understands the weight of what they did. Mm-hmm. He sees it as justice, but he's so there's this. Position of, of great pain and conflict mm-hmm. in his heart. Mm-hmm. So, what other comfort is there other than this is what the Lord says?
0: So, take comfort, and this is where God is in this. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I it seems harsh, but what else are you going to say? Like, you, what else? Where else are you going to go with it? Do you see the two roles here too? Moses, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, immediately goes to this is what the Lord said. Mm-hmm he goes back to the command of God the word of God what were nadab and abihu uh, roasted for not obeying not heeding the word of God and so Moses goes back to the word of God and he and he's he's very he doesn't say he doesn't say hey it's okay to take a break from being a priest and just be a dad for a while right God understands your anger with Him right now. That, that's okay. Sit there for a while. He doesn't say that. Very public, very graphic, very heinous judgment. And in response to the recoil, the natural emotional recoil from this massively graphic scene, He doesn't say, Hey, just sit over in the corner for a while and just be, just be yourself. It's okay. What does He do? This is what the Lord said. He responds with what God had said. He will be treated as one set apart by those who draw near. He will be glorified by the people. How many times had God been very detailed to the priests and warning them lest you die. If they're not obedient in these details, He will defend His own honor. Um, Moses pointedly states to Aaron that God does not display His holiness and glory secretly before just a few guys in funny hats in a dark room. He displays it to everyone. And to trample on that, it's not just a personal sin. Right? It affects everyone. Because it's a community. The way I, the way
1: some of that structure is, had they not been consumed by fire, they would have transgressed on the account of all the people.
0: Right. And isn't that what Moses points to eventually? You're exactly right. They represent the people to God and there could be wrath that falls on... on every. So, in a way, <laughs> the consuming of Nadab and Abihu was a mercy to the rest of the congregation from a certain point of view. How does... How does, uh, how does Aaron respond? He's silent. There wasn't this, but, 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 but. He's silent. That word silent, some of the smart guys will, will say that in Hebrew, it, it has a sense of rooted to his spot. He's not moving. Why wouldn't he be moving? What do you think? He sees his sons consumed in a fire of their, of their own failure. the words out of his mouth could also condemn him. Right? There's terror here. There's fear here. But in that fear, there's also, I I agree, that there is an understanding that this is just.
1: That's a good point. Just the, the, the
0: of that should have been me because of the golden calf. Actually, something mm-hmm. yeah, well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to hard to read his heart from this, but I think I think certainly some of that could have gone could have gone on. He's terrified, but and and Calvin also argues that Aaron's response is also a yielding to the fact that God's judgment was right. He's go, go ahead. Oh, sure. Sure, he's deeply grieved here. There's no doubt about that. He's got to be deeply grieved. Uh, But he realizes that there's no objection to make when the Lord brought justice to bear on those who failed to revere him properly. The psalmist says in Psalm 39.9, I thought this was appropriate, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. How many times when something happens that shocks us, scares us, scares me, I'll own it, do we just humbly sit and trust God's righteousness? Do, do we just... Hey, you know, you're God, I'm not. I, I will sit in silence. On a percentage, what would you say we do? I mean, we, we don't do that. Our natural response is, I've been offended here. I've been harmed here. What you've done is not. I mean, that's our natural first response. Aaron doesn't do that, and it may be he's he's thinking through. I deserve that from the golden calf thing, and maybe that's part of the fear here of silencing him. Where else is this going? Um, I want to be indica- uh, vindicated. I want to argue away the fear. This isn't just. This isn't right. I don't deserve this. But Aaron holds his peace. What do they do with the bodies of these men? What do they do with the bodies? Well, first of all, you've got this thing. of He goes to his cousins. Moses goes to his cousins to get the, the, the bodies. What's the deal with the clothes? The clothes are still there. They're fried inside the clothes. The clothes are not consumed. Why is that? What do you think? What the clothes. the clothes were holy. That's a little bit of a divine fire, don't you think? The clothes are holy, but the men inside are defiled because of what they've done. And what did they... What the, the typically culturally, the family would take care of the funeral arrangements, to take care of the funeral procession, and all this kind of stuff. Moses goes to his cousins, Aaron's. Uncle's sons to come and take away the bodies in their clothes to, to deal with this. Not, not Eleazar and Ithamar, his brothers, who would normally do it. Why? Body, defiled, to, like, That's right. And what had just happened? If you, if you touch the dead body, you're defiled, and you have a whole other purification thing going on. Why? Uh, uh, what, what was what was keeping them from doing that then?
1: Their priestly
0: duties. Their priestly duties. They're they're anointed with oil as in the high priestly circle there, and with the surrounding Aaron. So their priestly duties keeping him from doing that. But Moses wants this dealt with quickly. Why is that? So then get on with it. So get on with it. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, but why? You've got two dead bodies. Where's, where are these bodies resting? The front of the sanctuary, near what?
1: Probably the altar, the uh,
0: altar of sacrifice. Well, there's, it's, in the, it's in the tabernacle area. If Leviticus 16 is shining some light on this, they were in front of the veil right before the ark in the holy place. That's the idea. I mean, that's kind of the picture we get. If Leviticus 16 is, is a more clarification. So what would happen then? if you leave these bodies there, what happens to the whole place? It stinketh. It's defiled. Right? It's defiled. And that too could lead to judgment of God. In my place, in my holy place, there's this defilement. So Moses wants to quickly get these bodies out of there so that the place does not become defiled. Apparently there's a grace period. Um, What happens to the bodies? What do they do with them? Outside the camp. What goes outside the camp? Unclean things. things, Profane things. What a great fall. What a great fall for something careless. We also learn that Nadab and Abihu don't have children. They don't have an heir to take over their place in the priestly line. They're done. They're cut off forever from that role. Even their family line does not continue. For a careless thing. For a prideful thing.
1: And I see this as a hard line in the sand defining what is of most importance. Is your family more important than God or is God more important? God is obviously more
0: important than him. We, we hear about that somewhere else, don't we? It's in red. We'll get to it in a minute. It's in part of the Bible, really inspired. It's in red. So, Look at verses 6 and 7. Moses tells them to show no outward sign of mourning. And this is a cultural expression of mourning whenever someone has died in your family the disheveled hair, the tearing of the clothes is a sign of mourning. (coughs) They would become ritually impure because they would be near the ritually defiling corpses. He's not telling them to act as if it didn't happen. I mean, there's no way you can turn off your heart. He's not telling them to do that. But to be involved in the funeral activity would be in violation of a high priestly duty when the anointing oil is on him. He says, look at Leviticus 21. Just a little insight on this. We'll get there eventually, but we'll peek ahead. Look at verse 10. The priest who is chief among his brothers, who would that be? Aaron. It would be the high priest. On whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in to any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. We can add even his sons. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. So this is going on. Moses reminds Aaron of this. To do so... To, do, to participate in any of the funeral procession would desecrate what the Lord has set apart as holy. And the issue for these priests becomes uh, becomes before everyone. Everybody sees this. This is the issue. Would they show regard for the Lord's holy character above all else? If they, if they disobey these commands, then they will not only suffer the fate of their brothers, but they may bring condemnation on the whole people. They represent the people before God. And so, as Nadab and Abihu operate and do what the Lord has not commanded, Aaron and his uh, sons do what uh, do according to the word of Moses. Is that mine? It is. They do according to the word of Moses. And why is that significant? Why is that significant? Moses is the prophet. To say they're doing according to the word of Moses means that they're doing it according to the word of the Lord. It's the same. He represents God to the people. That's the office that he's in. All right. I am really glad that we live in a post-cross time where stuff like this doesn't happen. I mean, really, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? Turn to Acts 5. (laughs) Verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira See you later. sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Now, there's an indictment. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did not it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have given any amount. It had been okay. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Apologetically, look at the relationship between the Holy Spirit and God. He's lied to the Holy Spirit. He's lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he said, Look, Peter, you know, it's just a mistake. It's a little infraction. We're under grace. The cross has happened. We're all good, right? Glad we got this worked out. What happened? He, he breathed his last. And Peter tells the young men, Get him out of here, take him outside the camp. Then what happens? Mrs. Ananias comes. And the, and the guys are coming back in from taking Ananias out, and she and he. And Peter asked her, "Did you sell it for such and such?" "Yes." "And this is what you get?" "Yes." "Why have you lied to God? You're not lying to men, but to God." And the guys who took your husband out—they're going to take you too. Boom. But hey, we're in the graves. Isn't it interesting how this happens in Scripture? You have these great moments of joy, of blessing, of acceptance of God, and then immediately following it, somebody screws up. It happens. Genesis 3. we got two chapters of Wonderful. It only took three chapters and boom, there we are. It's gone. Somebody screws up. And it's the eating of an apple, we think. A fruit. Probably Tomato. Because tomatoes are fruits. Um, Noah, you have this great judgment, this great salvation. The whole world is before him and the the dirt's really fertile. I mean, think about the farming you can get away with. The only guy in town, right? What happens? He decides to plant a grapevine. I've been working on okra, but he decides to plant a grapevine and gets drunk and sins like right off the bat. Um... You have the golden calf incident right after the giving of the law. Right after. You have this right after the ordination of the priesthood with Ananias and Sapphira. Triumph turns to tragedy. You have Ananias and Sapphira right after Pentecost. Really? We've just seen probably one of the greatest revivals ever since it's the first one. In in Jerusalem, 3,000 are brought to Christ this is great what are you doing we do this don't we we could spend probably the rest of our time applying this passage to the crazy stuff going on in the charismatic circus and and we rightly just I mean there was a whole conference on strange fire right but it's easy to point over there and thump our chest that's real easy It doesn't take much effort. How are you approaching the presence of God this morning? Uh, First Sunday of the month, we have Communion Sunday. How are you approaching the presence of God this morning? On your terms or His? What do we bring into the table? Something novel? Something God and, Jesus and? It's all good because we're on this side of the cross? In red, it's written, Luke 14, 26, if you want to check me up on this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, it's all good, it's after the cross? It cannot be... My disciple. Matthew 10.38, another verse in red. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's true that as priests, Aaron and his sons had greater responsibility to obey God's commands. They were immediately in God's presence and lived lives before God and the people that were to model obedience. I have really great news for you. In the New Testament, what are Christians called? Priests. Priests. You have great responsibility to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have great responsibility uh, because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. He uses words like, our God is a consuming fire. We need to approach Christ reverently in awe. I'll use the word in fear. I was telling the kids uh, this morning about a story I read where there's this bridge in China. They made a bridge, which, man, just makes you feel really comfortable that it was built in China. Um, and it's all out of glass across a ca- uh, this huge canyon. Did you see this? Right. A huge canyon. And the people going across it are very worshipful. Because they get midway, they look down through the glass and they get on all fours. They're doing this. It's a little freaky. That's fear. That's awe. That's something greater than me that could kill me. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Jesus is not our homeboy. Not only are Christians priests before God, but together we are called His very temple. And after pointing this out to the Corinthians, Paul asks, what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He's quoting the Old Testament, applying it to believers. Corinthians, don't touch unclean things. And what motivator does Paul use to encourage the Corinthians to pursue holiness? Hey, don't worry about it. You and Jesus got that all worked out. Is that what he says? Chapter uh, 2 Corinthians 7.1, he follows that statement with this. Since we have these promises, beloved, notice he says, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. To Christians, in the fear of God. God does not change. So I ask again, how are you approaching the table this morning? God does not change. He's still holy. He is still to be revered, honored, and obeyed. Uh, I've heard it said before that when we approach the throne of grace, we approach it boldly because of what Jesus has done, but not brazenly. This is His mercy. This is something He, in His great mercy, has given us. We should not take that for granted. We should not... um, Trample on it. I think Paul uses that language elsewhere. In his great mercy, he has dealt with the ultimate punishment for sin. However, his discipline at times can feel very severe. If anything, this passage on Nadab and Abihu should be a warning to us to guard our hearts. The sin of Nadab and Abihu was carelessness and pride. And I love this. The psalmist in Psalm 19, 13 says this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He gets this. He gets this. I don't don't presume upon God's grace. I don't want to say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do this because I know God will forgive me. That's His job. I don't presume upon the kindness of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Love Him, but fear Him. It restrains us from a lot of nonsense. Any comments, any questions?
1: You know, I've got mixed feelings about this passage because on one hand, you're like, those defilers, get up, get up. Don't, you know, burn them up. And then you go, oh yeah, how many a Please know, show grace, show mercy. Right. And so it's kind of like, well yeah, it's fair for them to burn, it's fair for this, but I don't want that because I'm just like them. Right. And that, that's kind of a stark hurt thing. You know?
0: There are warning passages in Hebrews. This is a visual. This is a visual. God is holy and we should approach him on his terms, not ours. I think a lot of the
1: priests, when that occurred, of course, Moses and the guys at the time to but everybody involved was trying really hard to, to stay holy so that we could do our job. Right. And everybody was having to make decisions and, and figure out the situations that they didn't foresee happening mm-hmm. in context of staying holy. How do we stay holy? Right do our job despite what just happened right well that's a good
0: mode yeah yeah and you see that in the rest of the chapter what we'll get to in a couple of weeks um, them trying to discern okay this is a wrinkle how do I how do we handle handle this and still maintain ritual purity ritual holiness that's exactly what happens you're right anything else All right. I'll pray In, um, in reading this, Lord, we're, we're so grateful and thankful for the cross without which we would have no hope. And though you are holy, or I'll say it this way, because you're holy, you in your great mercy have seen fit to um, place your holy son as a substitute for us in our unholiness. And that because the veil is ripped, and as Paul calls it, the veil of his flesh is ripped, we can proceed to the holy place, the holy of holies, the very throne of God, not arrogantly, not presumptuously, but with confidence in what he has done. But Father, we we ask that you would search our hearts and if there is any wicked way in us make us aware of it so that we may repent and trust again in Christ and the sufficiency the completeness of his work on the cross I pray that you keep us from ever being cocky or arrogant looking down our nose at others who are struggling uh, with sin but that we would in the authority of your word from the heart um, graced by the Holy Spirit with mercy and compassion call them to repentance as we ourselves check our own hearts and repent we want to be before you holy and blameless and we know that we won't get there this side of eternity but we, we have hearts that want to be So we pray for your Holy Spirit to work on us daily as we approach the table this morning. Would you do what only you can do, which is to expose and lay bare where we need to repent? We don't want to approach the table unworthily. Paul talks about judgment falling on those who have done so in the past. It's a serious thing, and we and we pray that we um, have a right fear of God as we live, as we move, and as we rejoice in the mercy that we've received in Christ. Let us have right fear of who He is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.